Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Professor Edward Wallace, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to be here. I guess we should start by saying you and I connected through your cousin in Jerry Kershaw. Yes, yes, yes. And Jerry uh, is my cousin. Um, her grandfather and my grandmother are brothers and sisters. And so when I was at a Yankee game a um, couple of months back, she told me about, um, you know, this this nice podcast. She said, I think you'll be great for it. I'm going to connect you. And the rest is history. So here I am. So I'm, I'm very here, excited. Here, here we are. All right. So if I refer to you by name for the rest of this, can I call you Ed, doctor, or professor? Which would you prefer? Yeah, you can call me Ed. Uh, that's fine. You know, that 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 works. Uh, if, 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 if you're in an academic mode and you want to call me Dr. Wallace, then we can flow with that too. <laughs> All right, perfect. We'll make it work either way. All right. All right. So, and Jerry was very excited to tell me that you're a New York guy. Yes, I am. I'm very much a New York guy. All the way, all around. Um, I was born in uh, New York City in the Bronx. Um, we like to call it the Boogie Down Bronx. Uh, you know, we always try to give it some flavor in terms of those of us who are born um, in the Bronx. So yeah, I like I I I like to think and I like to say that um, New York has shaped me in a variety of different ways where I've been able to travel, see the world through a variety of different lens, lenses because of the so much of the culture that's there in New York City. Um, and so I've been allowing myself to, and, and just to know how to actually survive in general, um, just by growing up in New York, uh, because it being so, so, so fast paced. But um, in terms of New York guy, yeah, I'm a diehard sports guy with when it comes to New York. I, I love my New York Jets. Um, I, I love my New York Knicks. I, I enjoy... I'm even watching the Giants, things of that particular nature. So, yes, New York, uh, I kind of eat, sleep, and breathe New York City all the time. Well, it sounds like you've been a uh, Jets fan uh, for more than a minute, and you've got to be really loyal to be to go through what you've gone through as a Jets fan. Yeah, that is true. It's been rough for us Jets fans for, for a long time. But, I mean, um, that's the team. Uh, I've always uh, loved them during the good times as well as the bad times. Been a lot more bad times than good times uh, as it comes to our New York Jets. But yeah, um, I, I'm always rooting for them every chance I get. I, th I think they're actually trying to put together a team that can win something. So we'll, we'll see what happens over the next couple of years. And your Knicks seem to be getting better too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Knicks, yeah, the Knicks are getting better. They've, they've gone out and tried to uh, make some trades and gone out, you know, to, to spend some money to, to, to kind of bring some excitement um, to the, the garden. Um, right now, all the excitement has been around um, the Brooklyn uh, Nets. But yeah, but uh, the, the, the Knicks is the, the mecca. The Madison Square Garden is the mecca of basketball for New York City. So everyone loves to play there. Everyone loves to go to the games. So hopefully the, the, the Knicks, the Knicks can do the right thing as well. When's, when's the last time you went to a Knicks game? Uh, I went to, well, last time the Knicks game was actually last year. Um, so I was able to actually connect with some of my fraternity brothers. And then we actually uh, got, all got together and we actually went to a Knicks game. So the, I've never been to the Garden, but I've heard it's an amazing place to watch a sporting event. 
Oh yeah, it is. It is. I mean, and the fan, the 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 fans are loyal. You know, they love you. They hate you. You know, it's a very nice, exciting environment to actually be in. You know, to be in Madison Square Garden. Uh, you see, all the stars tend to come out to watch the game, and so yeah, it's it's, it's very very exciting. Absolutely. Yeah, my wife is from Northern Jersey, Bergen County, and her grandfather. I think grew up in the Bronx and her grandmother grew up in Queens or vice versa kind of thing. So she, she loves her roots to the Bronx and, and Queens. Uh, but now she's in uh, Virginia. Doesn't okay. make it. <laughs> she went to a very different place. Yeah. 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 All right. So uh, you ended up being what a sports kid growing up like in middle school and high school kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, sports has always been a kind of, a part of my life. I like, I kind of ran track and field, you know, played football, played basketball, played street basketball, street football, stickball. Um, so it, it's always been um, a part of my life. Also, a lot of my family members are big sports fanatics. And so when we would have Thanksgiving dinners and Christmas dinners and the sports was on, everyone was surrounded around the television rooting on their teams, whether it was for football, whether it was for basketball. And then we also talked a lot of sports as well. And so just coming up in that type of environment um, in terms of, in terms of my family, as well, as well as many of my friends allowed me to, you know, just gravitate to sports. Um, And then obviously, you know, just sports in general is, is such a good way to learn about life. You know, in terms of teamwork, in terms of being independent, um, in terms of having other people depend on you. So it, it, it teaches you about life skills as well. So all of that for, for me was, was pretty great. Yeah, you and I grew up in similar ways, playing a lot of things, whether it's in the neighborhood or playing for your school team or rec team. We didn't talk about sports a lot in my house. It was kind of weird. Uh, I, I couldn't get enough of it. And I will say that uh, it's made me uh, who I am today in a lot of ways. I'm sure that it's had the same effect on you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I mean, the, the sports has definitely made me in terms of who I am. Us us talking about sports in the house um, as a family, it was pretty much for bragging rights. We wanted to brag on, you know, whose team was better, you know. Um, not everyone in my family um, is like a Knicks fan. Um, some of us are Jets fans. Some of us are Giants fans, you know, so it just depends. But Regardless, at the end of the day, we're all we're, we're all New Yorkers, and so again, we we kind of use that uh, to to to, to kind of boast about our teams, and so uh, that's always exciting when 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 you can actually do that with family and friends. Were you also really into academics growing up? Yeah, very much into academics. Um, I have cousins who have always mentored me and, and kind of guided me through academics. Um, my grandmother, my grandmother was very instrumental in terms of academics. Um, I remember just as a kid, I used to do my homework and it used to be sloppy. And I thought that it was a perfect paper or a perfect assignment that I was going to turn in the following day. And she would well, she would look at it and then she would tear it up and tell me, do it all over again because it's sloppy. I can't turn in work like that. So my, my grandmother, uh, my uh, my dad, my my, my mom, um, my cousins, um, they've always pushed education, the importance of education. Uh, and so through them, I always had to um, do academics first. And so it was always about schooling first, first, first. And then there was always conversations. Um, there was never a conversation about um 
if you're going to go to college. They was like, what college are you going to go to? When you go to college, what are you going to do when you actually get to college? So there was always these conversations around education. And so uh, so that kind of pushed me more and more into academics. Yeah, yeah it's funny. I, I've got uh, two kids in college now and they complain when their parents, my wife and me, have uh, expectations of them. And uh, as, as a person who went through college and obviously you've been through a lot of schooling, when you look back at it, you're like, oh, my gosh, my parents did me right all the way through. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful for that. I mean, I, I, I can even recall them every time there was a parents teachers conference, they never missed one. They would go every time, no matter what time it was. I remember when my parents would come home from work, it's like six, seven o'clock at night. And then they're going to the school to meet with my teachers to find out how I'm doing academically. Um, and, and, and I had friends um, whose parents didn't do that all the time, you know, but my parents, for some reason, they were on it and they was letting me know, giving me reports about what was being said, if I was goofing off in class, if I was getting my work done in class. Um, and so we would sit down and continue to have conversations. But the fact that they were so invested in my education has really shaped me. And, and I really appreciate that experience. It's one of the ways I imagine they express love. Yeah, absolutely. 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 And and I had to, the opportunity to see them get up every morning and sacrifice and go to work and then still try to put food on the table. And so at the end of the day, if all they wanted me to do is to go to school and do my best, if that's my only job, then at least I can, I, I can do that for them since they were sacrificing so much for me. Yeah, it's really well said. Other interests besides uh, school and, and sports growing up? Uh, I mean, I think I, I think typically, I mean, once I've learned how to um, drive, my, my interest in terms of cars uh, became kind of a hobby, especially working on them. Uh, my dad, he, he was like a jack of all trades, so he can fix anything, work on anything. And even now, um, to this day, when it comes to cars, before I even take it to a mechanic, I'm looking at it first to see, okay, I can replace an alternator. I can change the oil. I can do all these different things. And so my love for cars has always been uh, uh, just 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 something that I enjoy doing, but as well as just doing different projects like uh, around the house, you know. And so I've learned from my dad to use my hands in terms of laying down tile, uh, laying down carpet. Um, I mean, you, I mean, you name it in terms of just fixing things. Um, I just, I just absorbed it all. And, 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 and those type of, those type of skills, spending that time with my dad has also helped and shaped me in terms of just understanding, you know, learn, le learning how to be very independent and kind of doing things for yourself and having some pride in some of the things that you actually do. Yeah. No, I love that. Uh, does your pride of cars extend to, uh, having a dream car? Do you have a dream car in mind? No, I don't necessarily have a, a, a dream car uh, in mind. Um, I just like the beauty of cars. I, 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 like, I like how fast they are. You know, I like in terms of how everything works together in terms of when you actually get behind the wheel. Um, so I just, I've just, it was just always been the curiosity about how does this machine work, you know? And so for me, it was like if, if, if man can create it, and I should be able to take it apart and put it back together again because I know it's something that can actually been done because it's been done before. So, yeah, that so that has always been my dream just to see how things 
are connected, how they are, are interconnected with, with one another, and then just how things be, uh, run smoothly based off everything else. It sounds like you get equal uh, enjoyment out of both taking apart and then putting it back together. I only enjoy the taking apart <laughs> part of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely enjoy the, the taking apart. Um, but then when it comes back to putting it back together, I think that's when you just have to have a little bit more patience. And then you get, and then you begin to see how things begin to work. Uh, when I first started working on cars, uh, YouTube wasn't around. So I couldn't use YouTube as a cheat sheet to kind of see how things are done. I had to pretty much just watch and observe um, and kind of learn that way. But at the end of the day, I, I think once I got the car back to where it needed to be and realized that it's going to run, it's going to be fine, it gave me a great deal of joy, a great deal of comfort, and a great deal of confidence to know that I can do this. And if the car were to have problems or similar problems in the future, I know I can fix it. Yeah, and you can, you can apply the way you learn there and the way you got enjoyment out of that to, I imagine, lots of fields or endeavors. Yeah, you can. You, I mean, you definitely can, you know, once you get some, uh, you build some confidence, um, you can apply it to pretty much any you know, aspect of your life in terms of just explaining things. Like once, one of the great things when I was uh, working on cars, like with my dad, it's his ability to explain things to me in very good detail. So when I was learning that from watching him working on cars with him, when I get in front of the classroom and I'm teaching as a professor, I'm able to do and use those same type of skills and use those same type of diagrams to make sure that students understand the concepts and what is it that I'm actually trying to get across in terms of my message. So having that very early in life, that type of experience just by working on cars and speaking with my dad has transformed me to actually do that in the classroom. And I've been doing that for a while now. Yeah. yeah what a wonderful example your dad was in that way. And I imagine a lot of other ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think one one of the things he was very key on is um, being able to provide for yourself. That's 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 very, that's very very important. He said, and one of his favorite sayings was like, "In life, it's going to cost you, and you're going to have to pay. So you can pay on the front end, where you can do all the work, or you can pay on the tail end, and you pay someone else to do all the work. But either way, you're going to pay. Right. And so if you can do it." on the front end and learn something from it, then you, you, you'll actually value it more. And so that's, and so that's, that's the message that I kind of took away. That's what I tried to do. Sounds like your dad had a lot of lessons for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So when you were in high school, were you more of an English and history kind of guy or more of a math and science kind of? So, yeah, when I was in high school, I was definitely more of a math and science type of guy, um, which is very interesting because I've always wanted to see you know, pretty much, pretty much in science, how things worked. Um, and so I, I, I had some great science teachers um, while I was actually um, in high school. One, 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 one particular uh, high school teacher was Mr. Smith um, in the 10th grade, my, 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 my 10th grade high school teacher. And he always demonstrated how things in science, you know, worked, how things, how it connects to everything uh, in the world. And so the way he taught and the passion that he had um, around the subject matter, no matter what it was, was very was was very very crucial to my to my understanding as, as well as my development. So yeah, I, I automatically gravitated towards mathematics um, and and science. I was interested um, in the history, um, 
just depending on the time periods, some, some some of it was very exciting, but some of it was also very boring because I couldn't necessarily really uh, have a good image of the, the time period within itself. And so I couldn't put myself in that time period. So it made it so it, it made me kind of struggle with understanding the whole entire story of it. Um, but that's not with all history. It's just, it's just certain parts of history. Yeah, history is a weird thing. It, I, for a lot of people, it either clicks for them and you can put yourself in that period and in those surroundings and other people, most people struggle to get to that uh, that point of view yeah. or that perspective. Cool. All right, so when you were thinking about going to college, did you know what you were going to study? Actually, I did. So when, so when I went to college, I knew I wanted to do something um, as related to health or medicine. That was always that was that was always my key, and the reason for that is because growing up in New York City, um, I had an opportunity to see and experience from 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 many family members them go through a lot of health complications, and so I had people in my family who passed away from um, heart attacks, who who've had strokes, um, who've had diabetes. Um, growing up in, in, in Edenwall Housing Project, which is the largest housing project in all of the Bronx, it was very violent. So I, I had an opportunity to see a number of violence in terms of shootings and people dying at a very, very young age and, and knowing that violence is also a public health issue, uh, you know, and particularly when we look at violence amongst young people um, across the globe. And so I knew I wanted to kind of change those situations for many, many people, many of which were family members, many of which were friends of mine. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to make a difference and actually go into either health or medicine. So that's kind of always been uh, my drive. When I first got to college, I, I, I think I uh, majored, I think in like in phys physical education, because um, I, I think I wanted to be like a basketball coach or something like that. And, um, my first, my first year out, I, I, I did some student teaching and I did some things um, around physical education, but it, it wasn't really my calling. So I kind of went back and thought about it and I started taking some, some more health classes, some pre-med classes, and I realized that was my calling. So I kind of stayed that track um, all throughout college and, 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 and into the current day now in terms of what I actually do. I mean, the, the combination of uh, seeing your friends and family suffer with various health conditions and, and seeing your community suffer in various ways with the combination of your parents really pushing academics, I think sounds like it led you down a path of uh, service and, and, and meeting the needs uh, of those around you. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I mean, very much so. I mean, I think when I saw many of my friends as well as many of my family members suffering from a variety of different health conditions, uh, you can't help but to take it personal, uh, because again, these are people that you love. These are people that who's been in your life, who's had an impact in your life, and so you want to be around them. You want them to live obviously um, as 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 long as possible. And so, having my parents uh, help me, kind of show me the way in terms of through academics and through education was a way in which I can obtain some type of skills where if I don't make a difference maybe in some of my friends' life, then at least I can make a difference in the next generation's life. And so that's been able uh, to, to help me propel and kind of think about 
of different ways of actually connecting the two. Well, Ed, Ed let me say this. Uh, if everybody or even half of, uh, of humanity thought that way, dedicated their lives in that way, the world would be a much better place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I, I think a lot of it's about uh, passion. Most, most, most things in life that drive people, um, it's something that's usually personal, you know. And I think for me, um, I was able to experience and have those personal experiences very early in life, um, and I kind of just carried those those personal experiences. And and and, and I definitely agree with, in terms of what you said. I think that. Um, if people have that type of passion, have that type of desire, um, people will come together even more and want to kind of solve these problems as, as much as possible. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So you ended up graduating from SUNY Cortland, right? Yes, yes, yes. So SUNY Cortland, which is a small um, uh, state school in, in upstate New York uh, as, as part of, as part of the, uh, the SUNY system. Then from there, I went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Hold on, hold on before we go there, what, what did you major in? And what did the kid from the Bronx think of upstate New York? So to start off with the, the for upstate New York, at first, when I first went to upstate New York, I was really kind of culture shocked because all all you see in upstate New York is farmland. So 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 you take this you, you, you take this young seventeen year old kid out of the Bronx where there's a nightlife, there's a skyline, there's things happening 24 hours a day. And then you take them to Cortland and you just hear crickets, you know, and, and, and the fun that, and the fun that people had, and even, even uh, some of the students was, was cow tipping. <laughs> like, like, like that was their thing. And, and, and like, I, I was trying to understand why would you want to go out in the middle of the night and push over a cow that's sleep, that's sleeping, standing up. <laughs> you know, but that was the thing, and so it was so. So for me, it was it was very much um, a culture shock. But I was, but I was also glad that I went because I also knew that growing up in Edenwall Projects in the Bronx, I had to make this work because there weren't that many opportunities back home in New York City, and so I had to I had to really quickly say, okay, I'm here. I have to adapt um, to Cortland and to what Cortland actually had to actually offer. So that was that was also very um, uh, crucial in terms of me actually staying in, in, in Cortland. There were a lot of students who were from New York City, Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and they became homesick within like the first week of classes, jumped back on the Greyhound bus, went back home and never came back. Um, and so that culture shock, you know, by going to Cortland uh, was kind of real, but again, I kind of use my passions and my experiences uh, um, growing up very early to say I have to ride this out and I have to be successful at it. So, so I was able to actually stay there uh, in Cortland and actually thrive. Yes, thrive in Cortland without yeah. counting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it counts. <laughs> so what did you end up majoring in? So, so I was majoring in uh, health science. Yeah, so so so, so I, I made and so I took a lot of uh, courses. Um, I took a, um, a epidemiology course. I took a community health course. Um, I took some personal health courses, nutrition courses, um, and again, so I, I I was always had my, my 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 thumb on the pulse of doing something in the health field. I didn't want to go um, allied health, or or I didn't want to do nursing. 
but I knew I wanted to do health and I actually, I knew, I knew I wanted to be a part of public health slash the medical health uh, uh, profession. So that's what I majored in. Um, and I had some great opportunities. I actually did an internship at the state health department in Albany. Mm. And, and one of my jobs while I was doing this internship, we used to drive around upstate New York, particularly in the Albany area. And I would, and I was a, a health inspector at many of the different restaurants oh. learning. Yeah. So it, it, so it was really kind of cool to kind of even see, you know, how different policies and uh, other type of laws were being put in place to make sure people were actually healthy, that they were eating and dining in places that were healthy and that were sanitized because it would actually help you live longer. And so um, being able to actually uh, uh, do that um, was what was also a, a great eye opener. Yeah. Uh, there have been a million shows on TV that uh, at least one episode portrays uh, a health inspector going into a restaurant. It's usually a sitcom kind of thing, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but you got to experience uh, that be, being in the middle of that uh, process in the middle of that world that had to be eye opening in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was very eye-opening. Like I said, um, eye-opening in the sense that you really got a chance to understand how uh, the government was very much on to making sure people were kind of doing the right thing in terms of protecting other people's health um, and, and what those numbers mean. And even to this day, when I go out to restaurants and I look around, I look for those numbers. I look to see if it's a 95 or higher, all right, because I'm kind of conditioned to kind of look for these things because knowing that they're going out of their way to make sure that the food is healthy, it's at the right temperature, that you're not going to uh, get sick from botulism or some other type of, of foodborne illness, um, E. coli and things of that particular nature. And so you're really trying to look out for the betterment of human mankind in society. What's a number you won't go below? Oh, well, I won't definitely go below anything below a 93. Um um, and, 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 and understanding that because there's no establishment that's a hundred percent perfect. You're never going to an establishment where you'll see a hundred that just doesn't exist. Um, but you do want to go into an establishment where it's either, uh, mid to high nineties. And like I said, the lowest I would probably go is probably 93. Gotcha. All right. So you graduate with a degree in health sciences and, uh, did you go into the workforce or did you go straight to a, a master's program? No, so I actually went straight to the master's program. I, I did talk to uh, two of my cousins because two of my cousins, they were also alumni of SUNY Cortland. They, were, they actually convinced me to go to SUNY Cortland. And so when I graduated from SUNY Cortland, they told me that my work wasn't done and that I needed to pursue the going to master's. Now, I wanted to go into the workforce, and they kind of talked me out of it. And, I, and I'm kind of glad that they actually did because they, one thing they said was like, well, if you come out, if you come out, and you go into the workforce, the money's gonna start feeling good and then you're not gonna go back, all right? And so that was very much true. And so I, I said, well, fine, let me go ahead and actually go ahead and pursue this master's of public health degree um, and actually see where that can actually take me. So I went to UMass Amherst um, and I went to graduate school there and did a two year uh, a, a graduate program. And even then, um, I was able to get some great experiences, kind of go out, do some research with some world-renowned uh, professors in the field. Um, many of them had different backgrounds, come, came from uh, all these different places from all over the world. 
But again, they all had this common interest in terms of trying to better the lives of other people and making sure they were actually healthy. Yeah, Masters of Public Health, do you feel like that program set you up uh, for the rest of your, your career? I think it did. I think I think I I think it very much did set me up for the rest of my career because anytime you get a master's in public health, that that in itself is a terminal degree. So that automatically sets you out to go out into the field to do so many things in the field of public health, whether that's working um, at the federal level, at the Centers for Disease Control, whether that's working at the state health department, whether it's working at the local health department. So there's so many different opportunities. There's so many doors that actually open just from having a master's in public health. So I knew that the opportunities would be there once I've actually once I actually achieved it. All right. So by the time you got to to Massachusetts, you you grown up in the Bronx. You go to up to uh, Cortland. And then you go to Massachusetts. Now I've yeah. been I've spent time in Massachusetts and and New York, both the city and upstate. Massachusetts is not upstate New York or the Bronx, right? No, it's not. And 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 particularly not Amherst, Massachusetts, where where you where the University of Massachusetts is at, where I actually went. And so um, it is very different and. In a, in a lot of different ways, but one of the good things that about Massachusetts when I was in Amherst is that I always used to road trip and go to Boston. So when I went to Boston, I still got that kind of city feel, even though it wasn't New York City. It was still a city, different faces, but many of the same issues, many of the same problems. So it was very easy for me to actually adapt and kind of understand how Massachusetts operates. I mean, obviously, they love their sports. They love their Patriots. They love, you know, everything about Massachusetts as well. But I was still able to actually just kind of dig into what Massachusetts had to offer, even though it's a lot different than, than New York City. Did you tell everybody that you were uh, a fan of a bunch of New York sports teams? Oh, of course. Of <laughs> course. Like that, 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 that's, that's in my DNA. So everywhere I go, I let people know, yeah, I'm a New York. And plus they can tell. They always say, well, I hear your New York accent. You know, I can hear, you know, you talk like a New York. I, I can hear it. And so it, it, make, it makes it very easy for, for people to say, oh, yeah, he's from New York. And you can pick up on a Boston or Amherst accent. Oh, right? yeah, 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 yeah. I, I can pick up on a Boston accent. I can pick up on a Virginia accent, an Alabama accent. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so did you work after your master's program or did you go straight to the Ph.D. program? So after my master's program, I did take a, I did work for a year. I worked, I, I worked, I stayed up in Albany. And so I worked at the state health department um, in the, in the epidemiology unit with Dr. Stan Kondracki. That was, a, uh, he, he was an epidemiologist there. And he was uh, instrumental in actually talking to me about going into um, my PhD program. And so he went to the University of Alabama and he still had some connections down there. And he made some phone calls for me and he said, hey, look, I got this dynamic young guy who's hungry about knowledge and he's very passionate about public health. You know, I think I, I think you guys should kind of, kind of check him out. And so um, I applied, put the application in. Um, they called me down there for an interview, flew, flew me down, interviewed me and so forth. And um, they actually accepted me into the program. At the time I actually got into the program, they didn't have any funding for me at first. 
So the first, so the first year I had to come out of pocket and actually pay for my own PhD program. Uh, but again, I was so driven about what, I, what it is that I actually wanted to do that didn't really matter to me during the time, but eventually, um, they came up. They came up with some money for some scholarship, and then they gave me a full ride to complete my PhD at the University of Alabama. Yeah, I mean, I've asked the culture shock question a couple of times. Yeah, I have to ask what it's like <laughs> Alabama for for a kid who spent time his entire life in the Northeast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Alabama also is a great deal uh, culture shock. Um, I stayed in uh, Birmingham. I lived in Birmingham, but I always used to commute up to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where actually the University of Alabama is. I also lived in Alabama, uh, in, in Tuscaloosa for a while. But I think what I liked about Alabama the most is when you first get there, the people kind of give you a quick history of what it's like to live in Alabama and where you should and should not go. And what, and what year was this when you started the PhD program? So, so, so this, so this, so this was in 1998 when I actually went down to Alabama. So I first, I first set foot in, in Alabama in, in, in 1998. So I get to 19, and I, so when I get there, um, they very quickly tell me, you know, after dark, you definitely don't want to be in certain parts of Alabama, and they and and they call out the different towns of Alabama. Um, it was very much live with racism still very much live where uh, the Ku Klux Klan existed. And so you knew all these different places. And so um, you kind of navigated yourself around uh, these places and, and learned these places very, very quickly in terms of what's safe and what's not uh, safe um, in terms of surviving uh, uh, in Alabama. And so I had to learn that. Um, and I couldn't be arrogant thinking because I'm from a Northeast, um, I knew everything. I, I had to really understand the culture down there uh, very, very fast and very, very quickly. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the South and especially places like Alabama and Mississippi do not have a great reputation uh, when, it, when it comes to uh, getting along with their fellow man. Um, did you find any positive aspects to, to the culture down there? Yeah, I mean, there were definitely um, some great positive aspects, I mean, about the culture. I mean, the one thing that kind of brought everyone together was football. And football in the South is is, is, is is everything, particularly particularly in Alabama. And so um, the sports around Alabama. So I remember when I first got there, like they had they had something. They have they still have it now. It's called the Iron Bowl, and the oh, yeah. Iron Bowl is when Auburn University plays Alabama, and you literally have to pick a team. Like the state is literally divided over over the football, you know. And so obviously. Um, I went to University of Alabama, so that became uh, my team. But the positive thing about it is that most at, during those games, people were just very much in terms of joyfulness, and they, they were kind. They'll have tailgate parties and say, "Hey, come over. You know, we got food here. We got we got music here. You're welcome. Just come and kind of have a good time." So there are a lot of positive moments within the culture. Of, of of actually being in the South and just being in and just being in Alabama um as a result that kind of made me even want to stay there you know longer than than, than normal and w which I actually did all right so you, how long did your PhD program take so my PhD program took four years to actually complete and what was your uh, thesis on so I was looking at the profile 
of violent offenders, and I compared violent offenders in the South to violent offenders up to actually in the North. Huh. Yeah. 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 Oh, I so, imagine you had a lot of differences. Oh, yeah. There, yeah. 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 There are a number of differences and a number of reasons why those differences kind of um, existed. Um, but even with the number of uh, differences, there were some commonality themes in which the main one that was obviously comes up all the time was just economic opportunity and then poverty, right? And that was always the common denominator um, in many of it. But in the South, many of the um, violence that uh, you tended to see was more about vandalism, um, destroying people's property, stealing people's property. Uh, but when we talk about the Northeast, it was more of homicide, one-on-one, -on -one, different type of shootings and, and so forth. And so there were some differences, um, but there was also some, 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 some common themes in terms of why violence tended to occur and then obviously why these differences were actually there as well. Yeah, I, I won't explore uh, your thesis too much, but it sounds like in the North, it, it tended to be uh, more violent towards other people anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the North the North is very violent towards uh, uh, a lot more people. And, and you also have to remember, too, many people from the South migrated to the North. Mm. And they migrated to the North for opportunity, um, which... Many and they landed in many cities like New York, like Chicago, um, and so forth, and like Boston. And so, when you have this great influx of people coming to the north, who some tend to have skills, some tend to not have skills, but you have this overpopulation in the city, and there's this constant competition amongst one another, it does tend to actually get violent. And then, when you throw in other ways of discrimination and so forth against different groups of people, it makes for a prime place for a lot of violence to actually take place. And that's what we actually tend to see in a lot of the cities today. A lot of overcrowding, but not enough opportunities. And so therefore, um, people still have to survive. People still have to put food on their family's table. And they tend to do it by, by, by any means that they know how. And sometimes that means going out and being violent towards others. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure where I want to go next, Ed. Uh, so let, let's close out the the academic side, at least as a student. Yeah. You then transition into public health uh, in the public sector, or to become academic institutions. No, so it became yeah yeah so it it, it definitely became academic institutions. Um, and the reason why I became academic institution um, is because I, I, I do have uh, family members who are actually academics as well. But I felt that's the place in which I can probably have the most impact when it comes to shaping lives and getting people to critically think and look at the world from a variety of different lenses um, and different experiences um, that allow you to actually go ahead and, and, and kind of make some 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 humane decisions, uh, not just for yourself, but for other people as well. All right, so I, I've had a, a buddy of mine on this podcast. He's from Mississippi. He, he yeah. happens to be black. And he told me when he was in high school that they had a, uh, a separate prom for the, the black kids and a separate prom for the white kids. And I said, when did that stop? And I, I, this is three years ago. And he said, no. it, ha it hasn't stopped. 
and and I my mind was blown. And of course, I'm a white guy. I, I have zero white guy from Virginia. I have zero sense of this sort of thing. Uh, you and I were talking before we started recording a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, where you were telling me about uh, the, the uh, Tuskegee experiment and yeah. a couple of things. Can you tell me some things that would make me uh, horribly disheartened in mankind, but 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 explain it so our listeners and I can have a better appreciation for some of our history and how that impacts public health today. Yeah. So if we, if we, if, if, if we take the uh, Tuskegee experiment and it, it's probably one of the most uh, talked about um, experiments that existed because it was so unethical, the whole entire experiment within itself. So you had a number of, African-American sharecroppers, they, they were farmers, very poor, who uh, lived in Tuskegee, Alabama. And these, and they were all African-American men. And these men were told that they actually had, well, excuse me, these men actually had syphilis. So the government did not give them syphilis. One of the biggest myths is people think that the government gave them syphilis. They already had syphilis. But they were, since they had syphilis, they were told that they had bad blood. So they needed them to be a part of this ex, uh, experiment, this research study that would allow them to look at the effects of syphilis and what would actually happen. What makes the study so horrific in, in, in our history is that these men were told that the study will only last for six months. In actuality, the study lasted for 40 years. Not only did the study last for 40 years, our own US government had treatment to treat the syphilis. You treat syphilis with penicillin. We had penicillin, the government had penicillin, but they refused to give it to these African-American men because they wanted to see the full development and the full effects of what syphilis does to the human body. If you understand syphilis, syphilis, syphilis has three different stages, right? The first is the primary stage and you have the secondary stage. Then you have what you call a tertiary stage. Primary stage, you may develop a couple of canker sores. The um, secondary stage, you may have some abnormality. You may have some bumps, a rash. And usually during the tertiary stage, that's when death occurs. So they wanted to watch this particular disease progress all the way to the tertiary stage. But even with that, it took until 1997 for the government, particularly um, former President Bill Clinton, to publicly give an apology to the families of these men who passed away and even some of the men who were who actually survived the actual experiment itself. And so when we look at health today, particularly when we're talking about um, uh, giving different type of dosages or different type of medicines, there is this mistrust. If we even think about COVID, when COVID, when COVID came, many people were not running out to get vaccinated. Right. A lot of that has some historical comes from the historical trauma 
in which people can't trust the government or trust the medical profession because of things like the Tuskegee experiment that existed. And so if the government can do that, then people can still have the same mindset that they're willing to actually do it now. And even when the um, different type of uh, vaccines were available, we even seen that they weren't really even that effective um, when they actually first were actually delivered. You know, um, we, we had the Johnson & Johnson, which had to be taken off uh, the shelf because it wasn't effective. The Moderna and the Pfizer work, and that's what the government uh, recommended for, for, for the public, and we took that. But, at, but in the beginning, we were also taking Johnson & Johnson. But Johnson & Johnson was still causing people to actually get sick. And so again, these are clinical trials. These are studies that the government or these are studies that institutions are doing on human lives and people tend to uh, to be fearful because they understand that type of historical trauma. Yeah, I mean, you use the term unethical and that's certainly accurate. I would also say that that's evil. Uh, we should not be running experiments that put people in a much worse physical condition over a long period of time. I mean, it's it's disgusting, it's revolting. You said 97, Clinton issued a public apology. When did the experiment start? So the experiment started in 1932. And it went until 72. And then it took the federal government another 25 years to come to grips with a public apology? Correct. That's not that's not that long ago. It, no, it's, no, it's not. It's not. It, 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 it's not. And so, um, again, you, you, you all have to ask, you know, one would have to ask itself, why would it take that long? To even get a public apology, um, you know, and so and so, it wasn't until the, the the NAACP stepped in on behalf of the families and some of the survivors who actually sued the government, and they obviously won um, these multi-million dollar lawsuits uh, where the government had to pay out uh, to these families uh, as a result. But yeah, the, the the government did not want to admit. Um, that, that, that there was a lot of wrongdoing, a lot of unethical um, things that were actually done to people for no particular reason. And there's been other studies. This is just the one that's been mostly talked about uh, the most. There's been, there's been other unethical studies um, that we've seen um, where um, many physicians have uh, um, performed abortions on, 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 on females uh, without giving them proper anesthesia uh, and things of that particular nature. So there are a number of different type of research studies that, that, that kind of show uh, um, this, this history of, of people being abused in the name of science to better mankind, but that's not the case at all. Yeah, so to a person within the families that were impacted by the Tuskegee experiment, I, I imagine every single one would say, I wish you, you'd given my family member penicillin and we would have been done with all of this. It wouldn't have been a thing. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm having a tough time wrapping my head around that happening period uh, or that happening with the government's knowledge, if not government backing. Yeah. Um, you, we, we also have to understand is it's, 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 it's where that, who's the government is also actually funding this particular type of research. So whoever's funding the research usually tends to have the upper hand into determining how that research is going to go. 
And so what we tend to see was since the government was funding this particular research, they never had any type of protocols in terms of making sure there was some type of consent, even with these African-American males. There was no consent whatsoever because, again, many of them had very low reading levels. They were, they, they were sharecroppers, so they didn't know. They didn't have anyone to advocate for them to speak on their behalf to explain that said the government needs to make sure that it has your full uh, consent to perform this particular study. They just was told they have bad, bad blood and they have to be seen by a physician and that they will actually take care of them for six months and they will make sure that their problem or their illness will actually go away. So you, you, you always have to look at in terms of the, the funder, what is their motivation and how are they about to go about that motivation to get the results that they actually want to get. When did uh, America know that that experiment had, had happened in the details you just shared? Yeah, so America kind of knew knew about this maybe closer towards the end of the uh, experiment when when uh, many of these young men who are relatively healthy just began to actually die. Uh, and so instead of the government stopping it, you know, during that time, they were just, again, letting, his, letting these African-American men just die. So that's when the question has started becoming um, uh, more and more. Uh, many, many journalists started, you know, uh, writing things in different newspapers, particularly uh, black and, and African-American newspapers about what's happening with these African-American men. And so that began to get some public attention and then people began to explore it even more. So I, I don't know what the mindset would have been if I was an uh, a African-American mother or father in the, I'll, I'll just say the mid seventies, but w or whenever I learned about that story and, and it sounds like a lot of others, I, I would fully not trust the medical establishment, the government, uh, public health in general. I, I would have a really tough time. Even if I'm generations removed from that, I would still have a really tough time um, trusting any of those groups. Well, well, yeah, and and we do see that today. We 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 do see many um, people of color who do not trust um, the medical profession, uh, the government, um, for for that particular reason. Because here 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 is here is a, a government whose whose uh, job is to protect. Um, all of its citizens, and um, they they didn't actually do that. And so, yeah, there 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 historically there's and, and there's been studies that's shown that um, generations, grandfathers, fathers, that even their grandkids, when they've asked certain questions about, do you trust the medical profession? Um, a lot of them say no. A lot of them are very, they're very cautious about you know a new diabetes medicine that might come out on the market. You know what type of side effects is it going to have? What what what's what's going to happen to me? All right, and so there are a lot of different um, um, valid stories that people share within their families from generation to generation that causes a great deal of hesitation and a great deal of mistrust within our own medical system. And and, and the long term impact is they probably there's premature death for a lot of folks because they haven't received the medical attention. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so that is one of the toughest things in terms of um, public health that even I kind of try to, uh, to deal with when I'm even doing some of my research, because 
we, 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 we definitely have to understand that the Tuskegee experiment was a very horrible experiment. And so we also know that because of that, many African-Americans do not or want to participate in clinical trials or even future trials. But the problem with that is if you don't, if, if as African-Americans or people of color don't participate into some of these clinical trials, then we will never know its benefits or we will never know if it can actually even benefit people of color because there are no participants who are people of color in these trials. So at some point we have to begin to have some real conversations about do we not participate and trust the government altogether because of what happened with the Tuskegee experiment? Or do we try to find some way of forgiving um, the government to some degree because the next generation of, 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 of kids, of scholars who are going to lead the world, they have to participate into some of these, into some of these upcoming studies if we if we're ever going to find out what works or not yeah i mean the, the cycle is d distrust or mistrust however you want to yeah. say it uh yeah. and that cycle should eventually be broken but I, it sounds like a really hard thing to break it is it is it, it, it is a very very hard thing to break it is a very i mean it's just it's just a constant cycle of itself i mean and again it's justifiable in terms of why people of color may not trust the government. It, it, it is very much justifiable. But even though it's justifiable, we still have to make some, some, some decisions about when and if we're going to participate, if we're going to try to uh, save our own lives or just save lives in general. But yeah, it's, it's tough to break. I agree. Yeah. So you, you had mentioned uh, part of health sciences or public health is uh, violent crimes. And so I, Certainly big cities, because to your point, they are there are a lot of people and much fewer opportunities. How, how do how do these cities get better? Right. And look, I, I don't want to make this super political, but no. our federal government sends a lot of money overseas. Yeah, there, there are people suffering in Appalachia and big cities. Like, how do we how do we turn the public in general and, and I guess specifically the federal government? into a place, and this is a huge question. This, yeah. could, this could give birth to hundreds of theses, but like, I mean, what, what's a couple steps we could take uh, in a direction that, that heals parts of our country that are, that are not well? Right, right. Well, I think, I, think, I, I think first we have to look at and, and define what particular type of violence are we talking about, right? So for starters, we know that there's uh, crime homicide that happens between individuals, right? And so what does that look like? Why does that actually take place? Is that something that's more economic? Is it poverty? Is it cultural, right? And so we have to begin to dissect that and, and, and say um, this, this type of homicide is happening because of X, Y, and Z. And once we know why that's happening, then we can address those particular type of issues. But we have to look at the type of the type of the type of, of violence that's occurring. We also know that, for instance, another type of violence is police brutality, right? Which is another type of violence happening against a group of people where people are not able to live their quality of life and and and, and maintain in, in their community. So your, your your question was was how how do we how do we solve it? Well, obviously there has to be a better um, 
relationships, but obviously between the community and obviously people on the police force, right? And 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 not all police uh, men and women are bad police men and women. Some people uh, serve; they take their they take their oath, they take their badge seriously, and they do protect and and and, and they do serve the serve the community. But we do know that there are some police uh, uh, officers who don't necessarily tend to do that. So how do we solve it? Well. One particular way, which is probably one of the best ways to solve it, and this is not this is not new. It's it's, it's something that's been talked about for years, right? Is that if I'm a police officer and I'm given the assignment to go in a particular community, what should happen to me is that I should have to go into that community, live in that community and not have a gun. That forces me to interact with people in that community where I have to have conversation. After about six months or a year of me living in this community, going to barbershops, going to uh, sporting events, going going to different churches, just, just, just hanging out at the park, just being a part of this particular community, then I can have the community decide if we want this police officer to patrol our community. Because now we have a police officer who understands what it is that we do, the problems that we have, the issues that we actually wanna discuss that mean something to us without the use of a gun. That is very crucial. We don't look at that. We don't address. We don't even try to implement those type of simple changes, which will which would do wonders between the relationship between police departments and the community as a whole. Ed, that 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 is so simple, and I, and I believe should be easy to pull off. That it would work extremely well. So let, let me. Let me say a couple of things and get your reaction here. I, I'm, I'm a firm believer, whether it's policing or any other endeavor where people have to come together to make things, uh, get, get things to improve. You have to know each other. Yeah. That knowledge leads to understanding. That understanding leads to appreciation. Yeah. And appreciation leads to trust. Why wouldn't those public servants do what you just described? Why wouldn't their leaders Tell them that that's the job. And by the way, police officers typically uh, are pretty brave people. Yeah, right? yeah. They wouldn't yeah. be afraid of doing that. Right. Why aren't we setting the conditions as a society for that to happen? Right. And and that's a good question, you know. And the only thing I can probably think about it is that it has to be politics. It has to be some form of politics. I don't know if if and maybe the 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 police unions would never go for something like that. I'm I'm not necessarily sure in terms of where, you know, where that 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 understanding kind of kind of comes from. But it makes complete perfect sense, and that it could work. It would work. I'm 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 100 sure that something like that would work. Why we haven't implemented it? That is a million dollar question in terms of why why haven't we? I don't because everything else that we've done is not working. And it hasn't worked. Yeah, I I, uh, I served a year in Iraq. Uh, I, I don't think we should have been in Iraq, but that's that gets into a political thing. But yeah. I served because I signed up and said I, I would serve in whatever way the government wanted me to, as long as it was 
ethical and legal and there that, that's a fine line both of those are fine lines but i met many many brave soldiers who one of the ways to lower the violence that was happening against us uh soldiers and against other citizens of iraq was to put soldiers out with the communities literally live with people that maybe two days ago they were trying to kill you put yourself out there with them and so that level of bravery exists in the world and a lot of them would gladly serve as police officers and start their journey the way you just described it's it's brilliant ed so in my own way i'll, I'll try to get the word out for that idea because it's uh it, it's simplicity is brilliant yeah yeah absolutely absolutely all right yeah wow that's that that one's gonna stick with me ed all right so you're a professor now and yeah you as a professor on a college campus uh, do you feel like the, the, that college system or that college, and this is not a comment about your particular college, I just mean in general, uh, is that college experience, and I have a feeling I know what you're going to say here, is that college experience necessary for every kid coming up, like every 18 to 22-year-old, or maybe, they, maybe they're 25 to 29 when they go through college, should they all go through that experience or it's not for everybody and so kids should be considerate before they go to college? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would probably say that there was a point in our society, definitely during in the eighties, the seventies, even when I was in college, uh, in the nineties, that I would probably agree and say everyone needed to go to college, whether it be a two-year school, whether it be a four-year school, but everyone needed to set their foot on a college campus. Um, because it's, it's, it's not just about academics. A lot of it's academics, of course, but you really grow up by being on a college campus, particularly if you're away from home, right? It, it, it forces you how to cook for yourself if you're living off campus, if you never had to cook before, walk, do your laundry, you know? So there are so many independent skills that you tend to learn um, beyond being in the classroom from a college environment. So I would probably say that there was a point where everyone, I think, probably should have stepped foot on the college campus. What we see now, particularly with social media, we have there's so many outlets where we can learn so many different things very easily without having any type of college experience. All right. And so when we tie up kind of have that, then everyone doesn't need to actually go to college, depending on, depending on what is it that you're trying to learn or what type of skill that you're trying to pick up, right? There are some things that, yes, you you, you actually need to, 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 do, to do that college route. But I think, I, think, I think currently today, I think the way in which um, college has become very flexible in terms of offering a variety of different courses, um, things on pop culture, um, uh, courses on um, extended courses in terms of history, um, just uh, of, of, of courses that 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 kind of just exist in terms of just just life in general. Um, you don't necessarily have to go to college. You can find uh, and get experiences outside experiences from from traveling, from going to different countries, 
um, understanding people's culture, lear learning a new language. You can do all this on your own without even going to college and still be very successful. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, I, I agree that, that college is not the best route for everybody. And to those benefits of, of learning how to cook uh, and uh, doing laundry and, and being exposed socially to other people, yeah. travel can solve for a lot of that. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Are you, you mentioned you were in a fraternity. Um, I'm, I'm going to guess that, that your right shoulder has uh, an image on it. Is that accurate? An image? Uh, it, it, it has a brand on it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you've had the uh, molecular structure of that part of your body change in some fashion. Yes, 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 I have. So tell me about your uh, fraternity experience and, and what that has meant to you. So my, 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 my fraternity experience, I think, is probably one of the, the greatest experiences that, I, that, I, that I've ever had in terms of understanding and in terms of going into, um, into manhood, if you will, during, during my college years. Um, it was experience where um, you were pretty much stripped of everything um, in terms of you being this selfish individual where now you have these 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 line brothers, these 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 other guys who who are pledging with you, who are going through this same process with you, who depend on you and you depend on on them. You're forced to kind of think as one um, through, through through throughout the whole process, and then you come out on the other side of being a better person, knowing that it's important to um, uplift. Uh, other people around you, whether they're um, in college or whether they're not in college, um, just in terms of just 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 in terms of humanity, and so and so um, the fraternity that I'm in is is called the Mega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated, and and, and and our colors are royal purple and old gold, and 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 we live by principles of manhood, scholarship, perseverance, and uplift. Those, those, those are our four principles that we tend to live by. And it's a lifetime commitment when you uh, join uh, a, a historically uh, um, black fraternity or sorority uh, for that. Uh, for them. I, I've had friends in college at, at SUNY Cortland. They have joined other type of fraternities or sororities, but they're only in those fraternities and those sororities for those three or four years while they're actually in college. After that, the relationships somehow dissolve and they don't keep in touch. Where after we've uh, uh, gone through um, this, 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 this process in terms of, uh, of being a man or being a woman, if you're pledging uh, a sorority, those relationships that you establish become lifelong relationships. You know, and we use those relationships in terms of the importance of networking, the importance of in terms of building. So if there's something that uh, you might need that I can help you with, then as your brother, uh, as being a, as part of the same fraternity or, uh, or or another fraternity, then I'm going to try to help you to, 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 to do that so you can actually be successful. And so it's 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 it's, it's something that helps in terms of survival as well. Yeah, I uh, I was in a uh, a social fraternity. Uh, yeah. We we had parties and drank beer. Uh, guys that I knew that were in service fraternities or historically uh, black fraternities, 
there was a real sense of service. There was a real sense of deep connection uh, through tough times. And uh, yeah, you said it very well. My sense is the relationships you have from your brothers is a lot tighter than, than uh, folks that go through social fraternities. Mm. All right. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was, I was definitely um, um, agreeing with you because like I said, but I've met people from social fraternities and, and they can't believe that, um, you know, I still keep in touch with um, uh, members of my, my members of my organization that I first met when I was a freshman in college, you know, and now it's 20, 20 some odd years later and we still share stories and we still check on each other and just want to know how people are doing it just in general. So yeah, I definitely agree with you. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you talk about the benefits of a college experience. I mean, uh, the Omega sci-fi is it's a right? Yeah. Yeah. Omega sci-fi. Yeah. Omega sci-fi and, and similar fraternities have, have done it so much better than all these social fraternities that are out there because of that lasting impact and this notion of instilling in case kids didn't have it before instilling this real uh, notion of service. Uh, yeah. it sounds like, there are a lot of opportunities in college for other uh, organizations to emulate what uh, exists through that experience. All right. This is a, a fun thing that I do at the end or near the end. Uh, imagine you're a talk show host. Ed. Okay. It's, it's one, one hour. It's only going to happen one time, but it's your, <laughs> your show. You're the host and you get to pick your guests. You get one male, one female, a musical act. It could be soloist, could be a group. Uh, and if you're into comedy, uh, a comedian. And you're going to talk. The comedian and the music act will perform, but they'll also sit down and talk to you, plus the man and the woman. Right. Who are your guests? Uh, so if I start with the comedian, uh, I would go with uh, Dave Chappelle. He's the funniest man alive. <laughs> yeah, he's the funniest. He's he's the funniest man alive. But he's he's also a man who's very conscious, who talks about a lot of substance uh, in his material. That kind of makes you think um, about about things from a variety of different angles. And so he would he he would be the per he would be with the comedian that I would actually uh, uh, talk to. In, ter in in terms of well, you, you said talk to. So I imagine that all these people would have to be alive. No, actually, this is this is a, a magical not, okay. great question. I usually mention that they do not have to be alive. I think we're bringing, I, them, we're bringing them back, Ed, for your show. Okay, all right, okay. Then I I I think um, for the musical guests, um, I think I would like to bring in Tupac Shakur. Uh, bring him in uh, for musical guests. Because of because of his level of, of, of consciousness, but I would like to sit down and, and talk to him in terms of how the Black Panther Party, which his mother was a part of, kind of influenced him um, to, to 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 be so radical to talk about so many different things. Because he 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 was a musical genius, which I think a lot of people would say was kind of a little bit before his time. Um, even though he left, he, he, even though he left uh, very early in life, but he, but, but he was definitely be, be before his time because he, he 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 was able to see things and hear things and, and discuss things and see movements happening um, all around him 
and particularly starting with his mother, having those one-on-one -on -one deep, deep conversations. And so I would always probably want to know and pick his brain to understand what was those conversations like? You know, what was it like to, to grow up in a household where your mother is a, a Black Panther and how has that influenced you um, as an individual, as an artist in terms of, in terms of your music? Love it. Yeah. All right, where do you want to go next, male or female? Uh, for the female, I would probably say who, who would I would want to sit down and talk to? Um, I think for me, I would probably want to sit down and, and there's a number of females I would probably want to sit down and talk to, but I, I think, I think ultimately I would probably want to sit down and, um, talk to Oprah Winfrey. Um, talking to Oprah is, is understanding how she was able to make her path for herself within the industry of television, um, do it on her, do it on her own terms, um, but and, and become very, very successful at it, um, and then to bring other people along, like Dr. Phil and other folks like that, who kind of followed, kind of, kind of followed in her footsteps. And what was like, and, and, and what was that like, particularly? um the the barriers that she probably had to experience um one being a, a woman of color but two being a woman uh and so and so living with that double-edged sword that 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 so many women tend to live with but for her to to be able to thrive um in this in the, in this TV industry would, would, would be something I would probably want to sit down and tend to have a, a deep deep conversation and plus she's very very influential on, on on many people and I think for the male um he's uh I would probably want to probably sit down and talk to Barack Obama talk to, talk to Barack Obama in terms of uh, what it was like being president um you know the, the things that kind of happens uh behind the scenes uh some of his own fears, uh, as being, you know, the first African-American uh, president, you know, um, were there death threats? If so, how many? Uh, how were you able to, 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 to um, make sure that you were safe, your family was safe, and, and things of that particular nature? And again, just kind to um, understand and learn um, with so much that he had to endure as being the first African-American president, he was always very poised in everything that, that, that you've seen him do. He never seemed to be rattled um, um, uh, uh, by much. And so he would be a person I would love to probably sit down and, and kind of talk with. Yeah, all four of your guests uh, share a lot in common. Uh, they're all brilliant. They, they've all uh, worked through uh, adversity for sure. Uh, and, and they're also... I think this is true for all four of them. It's certainly true for Dave Chappelle and Tupac. Uh, and I would imagine Oprah and, and Barack. And I'm talking using their first names like I know. Them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but they, they all are not afraid to speak truth to power. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, most people have a tough time with that. Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. They do. They do. And, 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 and that's another reason why I kind of chose them. Because... Um, they were they were very authentic, you know. And again, even even when Dave Chappelle was at the height of his career, 
and he left millions of dollars on the table, he was able to do it. And it, it, it didn't phase him one bit because he had to stick to his truth in terms of who he was, who he wanted to be and how he wanted to represent himself. And so, you know, for, for, for someone to do that, um, takes, it takes a lot, particularly, particularly when we live in a capitalist country where, you know, we, we value so much behind the idea of money, but he, he, he did not let that dictate him in terms of what he wanted to do. And, 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 and he's still, and he's still on top. Oh, he's still the man. Uh, yeah. 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 So if, if your show actually was pulled off, and obviously Tupac's no longer with us. Yeah, so right. yeah. Actually pulling off would be really tough. But if it actually did happen, you'd have the highest TV ratings ever, I think. Yeah, I think I think I would. I think I think I think I think I would have some pretty high um TV ratings. I mean, these these are all people that the world knows, they're their household names. Um uh, but again, I think I think kind of uh what will separate them, I think what people would tune into is them them being very, very authentic and true to themselves. And I think, I think, I, I think that's very, very hard, hard to find uh, uh, these days um, because there is, because there are so many different types of influences um, around us every single day. Um, you know, we, 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 we tend not to be ourselves. Yeah. But it's a, it's a good message to end on uh, that more people should be like that, be like the, the folks you would have on your, on your talk show. And I'm very happy to have met you. Uh, I'm really glad and Jerry asked you to do this or told you about it. Uh, yeah. I, I love the conversation and I, I learned a ton. So I, I really appreciate it. Oh, no, I, I, I thank you. I definitely will have to thank uh, and Jerry when I see her uh, uh, as well for, for, for making the connection. Uh, you know, she, she, she told me, she said, look, I got a friend named Paul and, uh, He's the real deal. I, you know, you're gonna like him. You're gonna like him. You're gonna, you're, you're, you're gonna have a good time. And and I tell you, Paul, you have not disappointed me. You, 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 you are the real deal. And and I, I definitely have, have have enjoyed this experiment, this experience with you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.